Father, as we come to celebrate Christmas, as we look at this day where we think about the birth of Your Son, Father, we cannot help but think about the cross. We cannot think but that He came to this world to give His life for us, that we, that we might have life, that we might have life abundantly. So, Father, we're grateful today. We give You thanks. We celebrate this time. We ask that You would continue close to our hearts that we might have and receive today that which You've prepared for us from eternity. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And before I, uh, before I begin uh, the sermon proper, I want to give a, a little advertisement for the Christmas Eve service tomorrow at 5. There's going to be some wonderful scriptures read. There's going to be some uh, wonderful hymns that we'll sing. And you're going to hear a homily, a brief homily from me. Uh, all I uh, know about Christmas I learned from the TV. So, uh, if that doesn't bring you out, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what will. Anyway, we look forward to having a wonderful time there tomorrow night. It was about five years, actually it was exactly five years after World War II, that Oxford University professor C.S. Lewis wrote a series of uh, children's books that captured a generation, but it actually has captured uh, an intergenerational imagination. It was on the, the cutting edge of a, a new literature, uh, a new literary uh, genre, really, where he wrote about how children who were displaced to remote areas having to come over uh, impossible challenges uh, ended up being uh, heroes in their own stories. And that only makes sense, of course, because British children had to overcome an impossible challenge at the very beginning of World War II called the Battle for Britain. When that happened, the, uh, the Britain decided to keep her children safe through an operation known as Pied Piper. Pied Piper was an action that required millions of children to leave the cities and to go into the rural areas. And when it began, in only three days, or four days, I should say, three million children were moved away from their parents. The most concentrated population movement in the history of Britain. In some villages, in some towns, they weren't expecting any children. But you know what? It didn't matter. They showed up anyway. Where are we going to put these children? I don't know. Go down the next road. You still have children. Go down the next. In some places, many places, in fact, they ended up just putting the children in gyms and lining them up against the wall and asking the villagers to come out and walk by. And as they walked by, it was common to hear, I'll take that one. Or, I'll take that one. And then they were completely displaced, completely powerless. Most of the people were quite wonderful and, and generous of heart and generous of spirit, but many were not. And there were people who struggle to this day 
with those decisions that was made. And even though by Christmas, by Christmas in 1940, the Battle of Britain was over, it would be another five years before Europe was safe. And so they kept those children out there. So Britain was safe from the Blitz, but Europe was not safe. So keep in mind that when, when Lewis wrote these books, the youngest of those children would have been ten years old. The oldest of those children would have been under 30. So that's his target audience. That's who he's looking at. Their memories fresh. Their memories, for some, painful. All of them felt alone, meaning they missed their mother and their father. And all of them felt powerless and displaced. Many of the psychologists today said this. They said that it was... It caused greater psychological damage to those children to pull them out of the cities rather than stay in this uh, war-torn environment. That's a remarkable, remarkable conclusion and observation. And Lewis knew all of this. Lewis went through this. Lewis's son fought in World War II. Lewis himself fought and was gravely injured. Two of his friends killed by the same blast in World War I. He knew all of this stuff, and he wanted to help. So it was that he published a series of seven books, one each year from 1950 to 1956, that we know of as the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you're not familiar with all of them, perhaps you're familiar with the, the first one, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. Some say these books were fairy tales and had nothing to do with Christ or Christmas. It's patently false, by the way. They feel that they were just stories, that they didn't carry any real significance. However, Lewis knew how it was that Jesus taught. Jesus taught primarily. He didn't use didactic lectures. He didn't use A, B, C, 1, 2, 3. That's not the way Jesus taught. Jesus taught primarily in what we call parables, stories. Stories that were very meaningful to the people of that day. And by far and away, that was his favorite approach. And Lewis was just teaching the way Christ taught through stories. In fact, if you've ever wondered, uh, this is why I begin every sermon with a story. And hopefully the story conveys the truth that the remainder of the sermon uh, desires to. In this case, the story was Operation Pied Piper and one of its results, the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, that book is like a parable. It's a story with powerful spiritual truths. Let me tell you just a little bit about it. Uh, shortly after leaving London and arriving uh, in their country homes, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy found themselves in a a professor's home, and they found an old wardrobe there, and the youngest, Lucy, walked in it, and she walked to the back of it, and she found herself in this uh, very strange, wondrous, but beautiful land that was winter, cold and, and snowy, and she meets a lot of fantastic creatures there, one of whom was named Mr. Tumnus. Now, Mr. Tumnus tells her about a white witch who calls herself the Queen of Narnia, but he goes on to tell her, no, 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 she's cold, she's selfish, she's evil, she's a usurper. She is not 
the rightful ruler, and she is the one who's made it winter all these years. And then Mr. Tumnus says this to her, it's always winter and never Christmas. And it's just here that we see the genius of Lewis, where you find that there is this beautiful world that we live in, but it's always winter, it's never Christmas. And you have to say and ask the question, what brings hope to such a world? Well, in the Chronicles of Narnia, it was Aslan, the great lion, in the, his mane, the shake of his mane and the roar that brought spring and life to Narnia once again. And what he describes in Narnia is what the world would be like if there had never been Christmas. Can you imagine such a horrible place? It's always cold, always frozen. In many ways, I, well, not in many ways, this is, and Lewis's intent was to demonstrate that that was a description of not some place in the mind, but here in the now. It's our world. Genesis 3 tells us that when Adam and Eve fell, sin and death entered into the human life and our world entered into a spiritual winter. And yet Genesis also tells us that God had a plan and He promised that someday He would restore all of this. He would send a Messiah, a Savior, one who would redeem people from their sins and break down the barrier that exists between God and man. And the Savior would come from the line we're told in Isaiah from, the king, from king David. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 says this, A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so the people waited, and they waited for this Messiah to come, trusting in God's promise, looking for the day that the Messiah would come, when He would bring life to this frozen and spiritually desolate world. And 2,000 years ago, that's exactly what happened. God's promise was fulfilled. But the world, then and now, just races headlong away from the truth of Jesus Christ and deeper into that spiritual winter. Most, uh, most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with uh, uh, Charlie Brown and, and Peanuts. And uh, Peanuts was created by Charles Schultz, a man named Charles Schultz. And Christians, I don't think that the, the average Christian uh, understands the social and professional capital that Schultz had to spend in order to get one part of his Charlie Brown Christmas. You know, when everybody wanted things, other stories, Charles Schultz had something that most of the others didn't, and that was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And so we owe a deep and abiding respect to him for putting this in. The lines, the following lines that are a quote from Luke 8:14. Charlie Brown, he's a frustrated guy. Well, he is always 
It was always a little frustrated, especially when Lucy would hold the football. You would think he would learn that he don't kick the football. She's going to she's going to pull it up because that's the way that's the way she's made. So they make him the director of the play because he doesn't have any holiday spirit. And so it's a total bond. He doesn't know what he's doing. So he gets fired. Right. And his job was to go get a tree. We actually have that tree in our house. That's our not that tree. But a duplicate, a replica in the real world of that tree, because I love to look at that tree because it's in that he's trying to find this thing and everybody's disappointed and they're all getting on to him. And finally, he just said, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is about? That's when Linus says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he says, lights, please. (laughs) That's his big moment. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all my people. For unto you this day in the city of David, A Savior, which is Christ the Lord, is born a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Linus says that. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. The child Jesus and the day of his birth are now celebrated as Christmas. And I take, I take great comfort in this, and I'll tell you why. Because the prophecies of old from Genesis all the way through said something to us. The Messiah will come. The Messiah will come and the Messiah will save His people. And what I take from that is Christ coming at Christmas, fulfilling those prophecies, means that He will come again. Is also true. He will come again. The Apostle Paul referred to this uh, Christ's return at the end of 1 Corinthians in 16.22 when he used an imperative Maranatha, that's a word that many of us have heard in the past, but is, I haven't heard much these, these days. But it means, O oh Lord, come! Exclamation point. And while we say that on Christmas Day, yeah, yet soon it's just going to be a memory. Gifts are opened, uh, the Christmas meals devoured and gone. The movies watched, I mean, Barbara and I, we've already watched How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, we watched uh, Irving Berlin's uh, White Christmas, which is really quite good. And, uh, and we're going to watch It's a Wonderful Life, which we've watched, I think, every year since we've been, since we've been married. It's a, it's a movie that actually speaks somewhat to the message this morning. We've watched a lot of others, but I'm not going to talk about Santa Paws and some of these, <laughs> some of these other things. But anyway, it's Christmas. But the thing is, it's also... Familiar. 
It's, it's also tr- traditional. It's so routine. We know the carols. Had those not been up there, at least we would have got the first and last verses of every one of those. Some would have got the middle verses. But the thing is, we know them, and sometimes, deep down, we're relieved when this thing is over. And I'll tell you why. It's not because of the celebration. It's because of the travel here, and the travel there, and a the lodging here, and a the lodging there, and trying to figure out how are you going to feed everybody, and what are you going to do. And then there's always those little family things that we bring in. They come creeping back in. Every year. And so some people are just like, man, okay, I'll be glad when things get back to normal. You know, what we don't understand, though, is that normal is based on our Judeo-Christian heritage. And so I want to take just a few minutes here to look at what this normal is that we long to get back to but more significantly, how different that normal would be had there never been that first Christmas. I mean, what if it never happened? What if Jesus had never been born? What if there were no Christmas? What if, like in Narnia, it was always winter and never Christmas? I mean, in one sense, like it's unfair to ask that kind of a question. Uh, it's like... It's like, I want you to imagine a world where there's no logic. It took logic in order to construct the question to imagine that didn't exist, right? So it's like, that's dumb. Uh, But if John Lennon can ask us to imagine a world without religion and think that's a good thing, then uh, maybe I can piggyback on that and see what the world would actually look like. And I'll I'll tell you right now, it wouldn't be any utopia. Interestingly, while purely theoretical for us, it was not for Christ. Do you know Christ asked that very question? Do you know that was in the Bible? At least on one occasion. Christ, He did the same thing. He asked the what if when He spoke in, in John 15... He did it twice, actually, in verse 22 and then 24. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And in 24, he goes on, he says, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated me and my father. What strange words. You see, Christ knew not only the reality that is, but He knew the possibilities that are. All of them. He understood the same thing. I mean, think of His words. If I had not come. Those are chilling words to me. So back to the question. What would it look like if there were no Christmas? You know, we wouldn't have parties, we wouldn't have gatherings, there wouldn't be any holly, uh, there wouldn't be any mistletoe, there were no Christmas trees, they got none of that stuff, no stockings uh, by the fire, no, no Christmas cards, no family newsletters, uh, no presents wrapped up in, you know, bright bows and tinsel and all that. No Santa Claus, no Rudolph, no Grinch, not even Scrooge, although he would be more, more the winter, the 
you know, that, that is out there. No Christmas programs, no candlelight services, no joy to the world, no silent night. I mean, all those things. But uh, that is so superficial, let me tell you. Because there wouldn't be a bunch of other things either. Because Jesus taught that we're not only to love God, but we are to love our fellow man. Are you aware that nearly all hospitals, all orphanages, all nursing homes, universities, all organized ways to take care of the poor and the infirm and the outcast came from Christians. That's where it came from. Now, the government's taken it all over, but that's not where it began. That's not where it started. I mean, even when you look in our own country, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, they were all seminaries to begin with, and only seminaries. And one, Harvard went liberal, so Yale was started. Yale went liberal, so Princeton was started. Princeton went liberal, and we've just had a bombshell ever since. You've got a few places out there that are still solid, but uh, not too many. What if there were no Christmas? There would be no atonement for sin. There would be no way to get on God's side. There would be no forgiveness. We would be forever separated from God by our sin. Jesus Himself said in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that whoever believes in Him may not perish, but have eternal life. It is Christ who brings life. But implicit in that statement is may not perish. Without Christ, that's our destiny to perish. Without Christ, there's no eternal life. At Christmas, the Son of God is born to live and die for us. When we look at the baby in the manger, you always have to see the cross. The, the shadow of the cross that overcast it because that's why He came. If there were no Christmas then and there were no Christ on the cross then, then there would be no decision for us to make. We'd be left in our sin. The most important decision that Christmas forces upon us is will you accept this Christ as your Savior? Will you accept His sacrifice? You know, will we turn our lives to God and seek to be a faithful follower of Jesus? Or will we continue to live in a spiritual arctic? Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A world in which there was no Christmas would be a place where the rules do not apply because there would be no rules except for those rules that we made up ourselves. The rules that we now know concerning personal and societal morality would not exist. You know, and we're seeing this creeping decay in our own society right now and every day. If you want to know what the world would look like without Christ, Find the world without Christ. Easy to find on the internet. And you see this hostility and brutality that happens there in anonymity where persons are no longer persons. We're there to be abused. We're there to be mocked, condemned, and criticized. That's 
what it looks like. You know, in its farewell address in 1796, George Washington wrote this. It may be a little hard to follow, but I'll, I'll summarize it. They used to write differently than we do today. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens, the mere politician equally with the pious man ought to respect and cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. When he says religion, he only means one thing, by the way. He means Christianity. Whatever may, and we've redefined everything, but I'm not here to rewrite history. I'm here to set it right. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined educations on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience, both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. What an, our president said that. Those are his final words upon leaving office, which is to cherish this thing. I mean, you know, most people, they think that uh, the downturn of American society was on June the 25th in 1962. I was in school that day, or at least that week, when the Supreme Court forcibly removed prayer from public schools. However, that's a mistake to think that that's when it happened. Because it could not have happened unless it had already happened earlier. And it had already happened where men and women began to suppose that morality could be maintained without religion. While I'm disturbed by many things that I see today, I'm not surprised by any of them. Ivan, in Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov, said this, If God is dead, everything is permissible. And God is dead among the so-called elites of our society, of the world. With them there are no rules, or at least there are different rules. Some apply, some don't. What we're left with is really J.R.R. Tolkien's prophetic voice. In the Lord of the Rings, we're only left with the ring of power. And this is a nation that has a Judeo-Christian heritage. Imagine this nation without the veneer of civility that characterizes it. Without the code of laws and ethics that we have. A world without Christmas is a world 
devoid of hope, one of the primary leading triggers for suicide. The care and pressures of the world, they come crushing down on us. And it gives us no mercy and leaves us alone and grieving and bruised. You know, and you look towards the future ahead and you see nothing but bleakness. There is no denying it. We live in a world of sin. No forgiveness, no hope of eternal life, no hope of mercy, no hope of peace of mind. If there were never a Christmas, how deep would the sheer hopelessness be? But, I trust that I have not damaged, damaged the Christmas spirit so as to be beyond repair. Because I want to change the trajectory. And I want to alter the ark to one immutable, indisputable, indomitable fact. And that is this. Christ did come. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 reads, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Therefore, there is a God. There is eternal life. There is forgiveness. There is love. The rules do apply. There is hope. Christ coming as a babe in the manger proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that the prophecies concerning His coming are true. And that God is who He said He is. We can breathe again. Aslan has come. Spring is here. There's hope. There's at least the possibility for justice and forgiveness. We may not always see it, but Christ is come. You know, my heart wants to move toward Easter. One of the things that I learned when we were over in the Middle East, I'd never heard it before, but it was in English, uh, the greeting was always the same. And it was required. There would be toe tapping if you got off on the wrong foot. And that's, He is risen. He's risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We have no such cry at Christmas. We have no such creed at Christmas. But I think that we should. And I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you what. And maybe we can adopt it here. Earlier I used a phrase found in 1 Corinthians 16.22. Maranatha. It's a Chaldean phrase. Just The only thing that makes that interesting is the grammar. Because of this. You know, I mean, Paul explains there in that 22, right at the end of the book, he says, Our Lord, come. But the grammar is what's really peculiar about this, about this word. Interestingly, it can mean both future, as Paul meant it, Maranatha, but it is also past tense, Maranatha. Now, you may not have heard the difference, but there is a difference. In one, it's two words connected. In the other word, it's one word put together. That's the only difference right there. 
And so what it means is, Maranatha means our Lord has come. Our Lord has come. And Maranatha means our Lord come, both of which are imperatives. I mean, Paul knew this. Paul knew this, and it was clearly an allusion not only to the Lord's return from our perspective, but also to the Lord's coming, the first advent, connected to also the second advent. And I I have no idea why the church at large has never adopted this uh, for Christmas. In fact, we don't say it much at all. When was the last time you said Maranatha in a sentence? It's not part of our vocabulary, but it should be because it's the cry of the heart. Is it not? Do we not want to see the Lord's appearing? I don't know why the church hasn't figured this out. But I figure we can do it. Okay? So I'm going to say Maranatha, and you're going to say Maranatha. Sounds the same, doesn't it? So, it doesn't matter if you put a space in those words or not. So, I'm going to say Maranatha, meaning the Lord has come. Actually, it means our Lord Lord has come. And your response is going to be, our Lord come. Maranatha. Maranatha. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Our Lord has come. Our, uh, our Lord come in the same thing. Of the few who have made this connection, there's one person who actually has. I read all over the place trying to find somebody, because I'm going, I told Barb, I said, honey, I can't tell you what it is. I'll reveal it in this sermon. But I, I'm a little worried about it, because anything that you come up with novel in the church after 2,000 years, it's like, yeah, Right? But somebody did get it, just didn't catch on. His name was Isaac Watts. And in fact, that's how he begins one of the songs that he wrote. It's called Joy to the World. The Lord, yeah, Maranatha. The Lord has come. And he used it in the past tense. Joy to the world. He was attending uh, this in uh, Psalm 90, 98, but if you knew anything about Isaac Watts, the Old Testament didn't mean anything unless it was repeated or somehow validated by the, by the New Testament. So you, un- you have to understand, even though he was writing about Psalm 98, He was writing it from a purely New Testament perspective, which is exactly what he did. He knew that one could equally say, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Joy to the world, O Lord, come, means the same thing. The final question that I have today for you Has the Lord Maranatha in your heart? Has the Lord come into your heart today? What a day it would be if today you were to trust Him. 
And if you had not believed until this day that He had come to the earth to save sinners, what a day that would be. But for the believer, does the Spirit of God cry Maranatha in your heart? O Lord, come. O Lord, come. What a moment of crystal clarity and faith would it be as if in your soul, really, truly, deeply, you were able to say, Maranatha, our Lord, as you came, come once more. Father, we're deeply grateful for your word. We thank you for the goodness the mercy. Lord, the grace, I want to say undeserved grace, but grace by definition is undeserved. But Lord, I want to add words to it just to make the point that You sending Your Son to this earth in a manger It should stun us all into silence. But Lord, having understood that, that it would bring us to joy. Knowing that the joy of this life in knowing You is not all there is. That You will come again. And Lord, we want to be here Waiting, eyes wide open. That's what we desire. But Father, regardless, we will see You. We will be with You. We will know as we are known. We thank You, Father, for all good things You give to us. May today, in this celebration through Christmas with our families and our friends, be a joyous one. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.